And, and here's my frustration a lot of times. A lot of times we take this word hope and it becomes a verb or we change it into a verb. All right? Because what do you hope for? Parents, how many of you hope your children come out normal? All right? You hope that happens, right? Or some person, you guys, it's too late. All right? It's just, it's going to be one way or the other. Okay. But you hope for things and you hope you get a job and you hope you get this and you hope you get, you, we, we, we've turned this into a verb. And I think what we've done when we change it into, or we sort of use it more in this verb setting is, we lose the ability to use the word hope as a noun. And I think when the Bible uses the word hope, because biblically, the idea of hoping for something, as if I hope I get some almost wishing idea, that doesn't square up with the nature of God. To hope for something like, I just really want that, that doesn't square up with the nature of God. So when the Bible uses the word hope, I want you to use it as a noun. That we have a hope. We have this hope out there. Paul says that there are three things, three things in the Christian life. There is faith, there is hope, and there is love. The greatest of those is which? Love. So we have faith, we have hope, and we have love. Now, throw the idea of wishing. Does Paul say we have faith, we have wishing for stuff, and we have love? That doesn't make sense, does it? That, that, would, that would seem illogical to place it in that setting. So when he uses the word hope, it's a noun. I have a hope. I hope for something. Now, let's define it in its noun form. What, what is it? What's a hope in a noun form that we have this hope? How do you define that word? I call it an unrevealed reality. It's a reality that you can't see right here and right now. Because if you can see it, if it's present, it's no longer a hope, it's a reality. So it's this unrevealed reality. So we speak of heaven in what way? We have the hope of heaven. Now, is it, are any of you going, I really hope there's a heaven what happened to your faith in that moment? You don't have faith in that moment. You, you're just, I'm wishing, I'm wishing there's a, a, there's a heaven out there someday. No, 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 we don't have that. We have the hope of heaven. It's there. It just hasn't been revealed to us yet. It's a reality that has not been revealed. And so what we, what we do in our Christian life is we sit here and we hold on to that hope, that unrevealed reality. It's something we trust in. It's something we believe in something we know is going to exist. Let me illustrate it like this. Anybody ever made this most amazing cake or pie or something and you have one piece left and you're like at work all day and, and what are you thinking about all day? <sighs> Your kids are eating it. That's right. I get Ashley on this up. Ashley will leave something and I can talk about it because she's not in here. All right. We'll... we'll She'll have something, and she will leave it in the fridge or the pantry for like a month. It's just sitting there, and it's like a, a Reese's or something. It's in the fridge. It's one Reese's left, all right, and it's in the fridge, and I'm thinking, you know, after a month, it's fair game. That's how I play it, all right, but I kid you not, the hour I go in there and just claim it for myself in the name of Jesus, this has been left for me, all right, and I eat that thing. She'll come back and go, I was going to eat that, all right? Because why? Because she had this hope, and she had been dwelling on it for a month, I guess. And, but, but that's what I'm saying. I, I love to make this white chocolate blueberry pie. It's so good, isn't it, Katie? All right? This white chocolate chip blueberry pie. It's like Toll House pie. It's amazing. And I'll leave it in there, and I'm like thinking about it all day long, going, oh, I'm going to eat that after, to, after dinner tonight. And so I have a hope, right? You with me on this? This is how we feel about heaven. It's the Reese's in the fridge. It's the last piece of pie. It's the last piece. It's, we know it's there. We just can't wait to get it. So this idea of hope, I want you to let that kind of sink in. That we don't hope for things in the Christian life. We don't wish for things as Christians. We wish and hope for things as normal human beings. But as far as our faith is concerned, it's not hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's just an unrevealed reality that we sort of tap into and we hold on to and we can rest in, like King David rested in that hope. 
So that's what I want you to get that thought in your head. All right. So what we've got to do is we've got to figure out what, what's going on with Hebrews. Why we have this letter written probably around 60 AD. All right. And so it's written about the same time as the Gospels. All right. And we've got a lot of context there. And we'll get into that over this next, you know, next semester of school. We'll take on Hebrews this whole fall. All right. But I want to take you from the from the, the Hebrew people, their original bringing, and get you right to the letter of Hebrews. And what we're going to do is we're going to sit right down on Jeremiah 29, 11, that you guys take out of context so much. And you go, ooh, what an amazing verse. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy that verse for you. And then I'm going to tell you how beautiful it is. All right, is that okay? Because sometimes it's on coffee mugs and on T-shirts and sweatshirts and on, written on walls and in churches and stuff. And I'm like, when the original people read that, they went, no, no, we don't want to hear that. But we've taken it and like marketed it. So I'm just telling you, we're going to go through it and we're going to land there for a while. And then I'm going to tell you why it's so important to the Hebrews and the, our audience of the Hebrew letter. All right. So here we go. In the beginning. All right. In the beginning, of course, we get Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden for about five minutes. And what do they do? They eat the apple, they eat it, sin, everything's broken, everything's destroyed. Now, 10 generations later, who do we run into? We have Adam and Eve, they fall, and then what happens to the subsequent <coughs> generations? They're godly people, right? So 10 generations later, what's, what's the commentary on humanity 10 generations after Adam and Eve? They are always wicked, all the time, with every thought in their mind. And God says what? I regret that I ever created humanity. Now, I've asked many parents this before. Have you ever come to the point where you said, I really regret having kids? <laughs> Have you ever? Oh, no, you've had moments, I know, all right? I've had those moments where you go, why did we have kids? All right, we were so happy together. It was such an amazing life we had going on. And then we had kids and it's like, they're driving us crazy, all right? But God got to that point and he said, I regret having kids, and I regret it so much that I'm going to destroy all of them. Now, I know you've never come to that point where you said, I have to kill you. I have to kill all of you. I may save one of you, all right? So one of you better behave, okay? Chris Nicole, you just had the one, so you're either in or out on this one, okay? All right, but, you know, we had, we had we got a spare, all right? We, we, we had the buy one, get one free. We always say, we, we had twins just in case we lose one when we were okay, okay? So God gets to this point and he says, I've got to destroy all of you. And he finds favor with one man. Grace is given to one man and his family, Noah, all right? Now, Noah gets off the ark, he plants a vineyard, gets drunk, naked, and his kids see him and that destroys everything all over again. So we're getting right back down this road we get the Tower of Babel. They start to say, hey, we're going to build a tower up to the heavens to show how great we are. And God goes, no, you're not. This is going to be fun. Jesus, come here, watch this. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to make those three people start talking one language, and those five people are going to talk another language, and those two people are there, and, they're, and then I'm going to go, everybody go. And all of a sudden, they start talking in different languages, and they start to group up, and they go, I guess we'll go somewhere else. And so they spread out all over the known world at this time. Ten generations after Noah, there's a man named Abram. And he's living probably in the area of Iraq, all right? all right? And he's living in that area, and God says, hmm, I need one person. I'm going to start with one person, and I'm going to make a great nation out of this one person. So he goes and he finds a 75-year-old man with a 65-year-old wife who has never had kids. They can't have kids. And God goes, perfect. Now, why in the world would God pick a 75-year-old man with a 65-year-old wife who's been unable to bear children all her life in an area 600 miles away from the land and say, I choose you? Why would God do something like that? That wouldn't make sense, right? Because if you're going to start a nation and have a, somebody with a lot of kids, you need somebody young, all right? You need somebody young. They're having kids. They can have lots more kids. And so we have the, So why pick a 75-year-old man? Because God likes to do the impossible that only he can get credit for. It's why Jesus died on the cross. So that he can get the credit for your salvation, not you. 
So be as moral as you want to be, as ethical as you want to be, as nice as you want to be. But here's the fact. You could not save yourself. That's what David was saying. I trust in God alone, not in my own righteousness. So he picks this man, Abraham. And in Genesis 12, if you want to keep keep up with me, in Genesis 12, he says, here's the deal. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And all the world is going to be blessed through you. Now, who's he talking about right there? All the world's going to be blessed through Abraham. Is that because the Israeli people have done so much good for humanity? They've done some awesome stuff, by the way. If you look up Nobel Prize winners, all right? Israel dominates, all right? They've done amazing things, but that's not what he's talking about, right? All the world will be blessed through you because this person named Yeshua is going to be born. And all the world will be blessed through him. Now, in Genesis 15, here's where I want you to go. Definitely go with me over here. In Genesis 15... Um, Abraham has a moment, uh, a human moment, and God says, I am your great reward. I'm your great treasure. You're going to do amazing things. And Abraham says what? Um, God, I've got no kids. <laughs> you keep telling me how great this is going to be. You keep telling me all these things. Um, I still don't have any kids. And so when I die, my inheritance, all that you've given me, all you've blessed me with, is not going to go to my kids. It's going to go to my slave. It's going to go to my servant over here. So you keep telling me I'm this, and, and, but you don't explain to me. Anybody ever felt that way? Or is it just me? Any, anybody else have this experience of God where you go, God, I don't understand. No, y'all are all good? Y'all are all perfect? You're all going, oh, God, no, I totally understand. All right? Anybody ever come to that point where you, God, I don't get where you're going with this, all right? I've experienced that a lot lately. I don't know where you're going with this, God. I'm just going to trust you, and I'm going to go with this. But Abraham has this moment, and God says, all right, here's the deal. I want you to go take some animals. I want you to cut them in half. I want you to lay them out. You and me, we're going to walk through this thing. We're going to covenant this thing together. He says, because I'm going to give you offspring. And he takes him outside and says, look up at the stars. Count them. Now, back in the day, not a lot of streetlights, right? Abraham looks up. How many stars does he see? Anybody ever been there before in the desert, wherever you are, and you look up and you, you can't even imagine the thought of counting all those stars? That's what Abraham sees and God goes, see that? That's how many kids you're going to have. That's how many offspring you're going to have, all right? And what is it? The text says what? And Abraham believed God. He went out and got some very white albums, got some roses, got, got whatever they got at that time, all right? Went home this there and goes, hey, God said we're going to have a lot of kids. We need to get to work, all right? So they, he believes God, and God says, I like this guy. And he says, I credit that with righteousness. That's what righteousness looks like. When you believe me when I promise you something, that's righteousness. He says, but I'm also going to give you land. I'm going to give you this land that you're, that you're sort of squatting on at this point. You're sort of sitting on here. you got your tent set up here. I'm going to give you this land. He says, but I'm going to make you some promises. Here's where I want you to see this. Uh, in 15 verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Now, a lot of people take that and they go, you're going to be foreigners and then you're going to be enslaved for 400 years. You need to put those two things together. Because there was no way that the slavery lasted 400 years. It just doesn't fit chronologically. It doesn't fit in scripture. Paul says it was only 430 years from this point to this point. So if you've ever heard they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, you just kind of erase that part from your mind. All right? I know you've been taught it all your life probably. It's okay. All right? No one's going to go to hell if they believe they were in Egypt for 400 years. All right? But from the promise of Abraham until the Exodus, or until the giving of the law, Paul says it was 430 years. Okay, so they were in, they were strangers and enslaved for a period of 400 years total. Okay, it says, uh, 16, uh, 14, however, I will judge the nation they serve, that's the plagues, and after they will go out with many possessions. Remember what they did right, after, right before they left? They went to their neighbor and said, hey, can I have all your gold and silver and stuff? And the Egyptian said, what? Sure, take it, go away. We see what your God does to us when we don't follow him. All right, so they take all this stuff and they leave Egypt with all this plunder. But you will go to your father. He's talking to Abraham. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here. We know Levi 
goes, the son of Jacob. All right, Levi goes. We have Kohath, we have Amram, and then we have Moses, fourth generation. So Levi goes into Egypt. Moses comes out, four generations right there. This is the fulfillment of this text, okay? So this is what's on the table. So they do. Abraham is given this promise. His son Isaac is given this promise. His son Jacob is given this promise. That's why we always say that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who gave you the promise of offspring and gave you the promise of land, the promised land. All right? So <clears throat> Levi goes into slavery, not into slavery, he goes to Egypt, Kohath, Amram, Moses. Now Moses, we know, grows up where? Where does Moses grow up? First 40 years of his life, where is he? In Egypt. Can you be more, a lot more specific? In the palace. He's growing up in the palace, all right? And eventually one day he realizes what's going on here and he does something and he gets accused of murder and he does what? See ya, I'm out of here. Runs off to Midian for 40 years and God gets his attention one day. How does God get Moses' attention? A burning bush. A bush on fire that's not burning up, all right? That would kind of attract your attention, right? So he goes out to this bush, and this bush starts talking to him and says, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. And he tells him this message, you're going to bring my people out. So he sends him, he goes to Egypt, he goes to Pharaoh. Now, we don't know if it was his brother or whatever, according to the Disney movie, evidently that's what it was, okay? But we don't follow Disney movies or the History Channel right here, around here, right? Whew, that's bad theology. Okay, so they go in. We have all the plagues. We have the exodus. He comes out of that, all right? <clears throat> Immediately, he's given the law, the law of Moses, all right? Where, where is it given? At Mount Sinai, okay? So it's this amazing moment. Now, imagine what it's like to be an, an Israelite in this moment where the God that created the universe is giving you this law. He's going to give you this land. He's just, you're just being birthed right here. It's such an amazing process, and two months later, they go down to this place called Kadesh Barnea, and God says, go, take the land that I promised you. It's your land. Go get it. Take it. And Moses says, okay, but first, let's go spy out the land to see what's going on here. And they send the 12 spies in. What's the report that comes back? What report comes back? It's awesome. But, but what? What's wrong with the land? Talk to me. Group participation time. Big people there, really tall people there. And when you have to fight and kill them to take their land away from them, and you're fighting big people with big walls and big swords and big everythings, what happens? You get a little scared, all right? And they came back and they said, uh, I don't, I don't think we can do this. And they did not believe God. And God says, because you did not trust me, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And you're not going to go into my rest. You're not going to go into the land and you're never going to have rest. You're going to wander and wander and wander until every one of you of fighting age dies in the wilderness. Except for two people. Joshua, Caleb. Why did they get to enter into rest? Because they believed. Because they said, we can do this. Let's pack it up, let's go. But no, they didn't go for it. So 40 years, they wander, wander, wander. We get into, finally get where God says, okay, 40 years almost up. Everybody's almost died. Here's Deuteronomy. And we're in Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses is giving this speech, and he's giving this sort of talk as they're about to go into the promised land. And he says to them in 28, he says, there are blessings and there are cursings. If, if you will follow my rules, if you will obey me, then I will bless you. I will bless you in so much amazing ways. And I always wonder, man, how amazing would Israel be today if they had just obeyed God? Generation after generation after generation. If they had just obeyed God, what would Israel look like today? But he says there's also cursing. And if you don't obey me, I will curse you and I will send you out of this land that I'm giving you. And that's a promise that he made, that Moses gave them from the heart of God. Well, they go in, and they take on all of these nations that are in Canaan. And they do some, such a many, so many amazing things. And they see so many amazing things. Man, I mean, we've talked about all these amazing things. The crossing of the Jordan, 
God throwing hailstones, the walls of Jericho falling down, all these amazing things God is doing in, in giving them this land that they will live in, this promised land that he promised to, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so they go into this land, and they settle in this land. And it's, it's pretty cool for the wild, while Joshua and the elders are still alive. But there's a verse in Judges. Come on over here to Judges 2. I want you to see this, because this is where it gets ugly. In Judges 2, verse 10, Joshua's died. It says, The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders that outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works that he had done for Israel. And verse 10 says this, though. That whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. A generation rose up that did not know about the hailstones, did not know about Jericho, did not know about the crossing of the Jordan, did not know about the Red Sea, did not know about all the things that God had done for them. Why did they not know? What was the tradition? What was the teaching, the, sort of the, the methodology of teaching in the Jewish community? What did they do? They lived it, they heard about it, and they did what with it? Taught it to their kids. And th that generation would do what? Teach it to their kids. It was an oral tradition. This was the methodology. This was the pedagogy, if you want to use a big fancy word. Right? The pedagogy, the teaching methodology of the Jewish people was simply oral. Oral communication, you pass it down. But what happened? Parents, what happened? What did they fail to do? God told them, when you're walking around with your kids, when, you, when you're lying down, when you're getting up, when you're doing all these things, do what? Teach the children. We say all over and over, set up this stone memorial so that what? When your children ask you, why is this here? You will be able to teach them. What was the expectation of God for parents? to drop their kids off at the children's ministry? That's not in the Bible. Parents, your job is to teach your children. Your calling is to teach them. The Bible never mentions children's ministers. It says, parents, teach your children. Parents, teach your children. When your children ask why this memorial is here, do you have memorials set up in your house? Do you have things where your kids go, hey, mom and dad, tell me about that. And they say, oh, great, I'd love to tell you about the story of when God did this in my life. That's what your job is. And this generation completely failed. And what it sets off, from 1,400 until about 1,000, you have this cycle that takes place throughout Judges, the book of Judges. You have the cycle. Now, what's the cycle? They rebel, all right? And then God does what to them? God sends in some nation, something, something that ends with an ite, all right? And they oppress them. All right? So we have this idea that they rebel against God. God sends us in this nation to oppress them. All right? <clears throat> but then they do what? When they're being oppressed, what do the Israelites always do? What would you do? Help. You cry out. So you rebel. God sends the oppressing nation. And you go, God, they're oppressing us. Please make them stop. We will worship you. We will do whatever you say. We will do well, all these good things. And God says, okay, I'm going to send in a judge. Okay, now not judge guy, all right? But it's more of a military political commander type person. This person is going to come in. And he's going to rescue you from the ites or the, or the steens, one of those, all right? And they're going to rescue you. And you're going to worship me and you're going to live happily ever after because there are blessings and there are cursings. But this cycle starts. And then once they would get rescued, what would happen? They would have rest. So God is this God who says, who looks at the rebel, the rebellion. And then he says, I am going to send oppression. I'm going to get your attention. You're going to cry out to me. You're going to cry out to me because God never wants you to be independent from him. He wants it. He wants to create that dependence. And he rescues. And then he gives you rest. But then what happens? When you have rest, what do you do? You rebel. 
How many times has things just been going awesome and you find yourself not reading the scriptures, not praying, not counting on, not really needing to be around fellow believers at church? And you get kind of relaxed. And the, the ethics start to slide, maybe the morality starts to slide, and you, because everything's good, right? I used to love going to FCA at Florida State. You knew who was having a bad season by who showed up at FCA. Why? Why? It wasn't the All-Americans that were showing up at FCA. It was a kid trying to make first drink. It was a kid that's been struggling, especially the kickers. Kickers were weird mentally, all right? I was one, so I can say that, all right? And, and, you know, if you're, if you're struggling, what, you go to FCA. Why? Because God will bless you then, right? But they would start this cycle. And for 400 years, we do this cycle about 18 times. Rebel, oppressed, rescued, given rest, rebel, oppress, over and over again. But God does this. He always rescues he continues to rescue, continues to rescue. Now, if you're God, what do you do at some point along the way? How many times do I have to clean up this mess? You keep doing this over and over. Eventually, what do you do, parents? You know, the first time you clean that up, it's like, okay, I'll clean it up, all right? The, the fifth time in a day that the kid spills Kool-Aid on the carpet, what do you do? That's it. You're living outside from now on. Here's the tent. You're good. I'm done rescuing you. I'm done. But what does God do? Over and over and over again, he rescues. We get into the period of the judges. Samuel is pretty much the last judge. And the people come to, come to Samuel at some point and they say what? We want to be like everybody else. We want a what? We want a king. We want a big one, a really tall one that's really a warrior. And, and they come to to Samuel and say, we want a king that's really strong and vicious and all this stuff so he can protect us. And we want to be like all the other nations, all right? We're tired of trusting God. The reason is the Amorites were coming over the hill and they had this habit of poking out the right eye and taking off people's thumbs. Now, why do you do that? Why do you do that in this culture? Why do you poke out an eye and take thumbs? Very difficult to shoot bows and arrows with no thumbs. Also, very difficult to aim without the right eye because you're, you're wrong eye in it and you got no thumbs, all right? So what are the people doing? People are just scared and they're tired. Watch this. They were tired of trusting God to rescue them. They said, we don't want to wait for another judge. We want a king that's big and strong and vicious and can protect us. And about five minutes into his kingship, this really tall guy shows up and where's their big, strong, vicious king? Hiding in the tent, waiting on a little shepherd boy to come out and kill the giant. See, God gave them exactly what they wanted. A big, tall, vicious king. Scared, cowardly man. God gave them what they wanted. He dies off. His sons die off and David becomes king, right? David becomes king. His, his son becomes king after him, Solomon. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is just that little nasty kid that's sort of the heir to the million-dollar throne, all right? Um, you guys remember Paris Hilton? Imagine her becoming CEO of Hilton Incorporated. How do you think that would work out? Think about the, the spoiled, rotten, grand son, granddaughter of the founder. Y'all with me on this? Let that kid take over. Let that kid, what happens to that, that company at that point? All right? That's why most companies last about three generations, three to four generations, until they go public because the kids can't handle it. All right? Rehoboam screws everything up and the nation split off, right? So we have Judah, which basically takes up Judah, the nation of Judah, is going to be right down here, okay? It'll have the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, all right? And then you have the ten northern tribes. That's really working well, all right? I used to throw it at students when I want to teach, so it's better, right? Israel is up here. Judah is down here, 
Okay, so Rehoboam takes this. Jeroboam takes his ten tribes and goes up here. And there's this thing. There's, uh, how many of 19 kings. Not a single one of them is a godly king. Not one of them. In fact, Jeroboam goes up and immediately builds golden calves. Do you do that? I mean, haven't we gone over that one? Isn't that one kind of a big no-no? You don't do that? Jeroboam immediately builds golden calves for them to worship their God. And then he starts to take people and make just random people priests. Well, we know you're not supposed to do that, right? Who's supposed to be the priests? The tribe of Levi. And this is called the sin of Jeroboam and every single king mentioned in the nation of Israel, that northern area, says they committed the sin of Jeroboam. Now, in the southern tribes, we're not a whole lot better, all right? Out of 20 kings, we have four kings that were good kings, good godly kings. It says they were like their father, David. We have four kings that were good enough, I'll call it. They were godly just like their father was godly. And the next one was godly just like his father was godly. And the next one was godly just like his father and finally, the last one was godly, just like his father and his son was a wreck. Why? Because your godliness is not this generational godliness. I don't want Caden to be godly like me. I want him to be godly like Christ was. And if all I do, if all he does is inherit my godliness, I know how jacked up that is. I know how flawed my own godliness is. So eventually what's going to happen? If all your kid gets is your religion, let me use that word carefully. If all your kid gets is your religion, your ceremonies, your rites, your morality, your all that stuff, it's that's all they get. Eventually, one day, they're going to ask the question, why am I doing all this? Because my dad did it. Why am I doing this? Eventually, what's going to happen? There's no reality to it. There's, no, there's nothing bigger than what your dad did or your mom did. It's what my dad did. My mom went to church, so I go to church. Eventually, one of the generations is going to step up and say, why am I doing this? Well, because I did it. Because my dad did it. That's it? That's all you got? And they're going to do what? Walk away. They got to know there's something bigger. They got to know, parents, your kids have to know there's something bigger than your religious ceremonies. They need to be taught the message, and the hope of the scriptures. Now, we have 12 really bad kings in there as well. All right? One of them was named Manasseh. He was the son of Hezekiah, who was a really godly David-like king. Now, how does that happen? How does a godly, godly king like Hezekiah raise a kid named Manasseh who ends up sacrificing his children on altars? How does that happen? How do godly people raise evil pagan children and they did not teach them well parents you got to do this now i'm not saying because you're a godly parent and you teach them they're going to turn out perfect i'm not even going to try and make that promise because this kid may go off the walls on me i I don't know what he's going to do it's going to be his choice but i'm doing everything i can to teach him i'm doing everything i can to train them up in the way they should go all right he's got to make that decision for himself someday but I need to be the guy, I need to be the example, I need to be the one teaching, encouraging, admonishing all these things using whatever means of discipline necessary, right, Caden? All right? <laughs> all right, but, but this was our job. This was their job. So Manasseh comes and sacrifices kids, and several times we have in the scriptures, and God says, that's it. That was the last straw. And what happens? In 722, 722, the Assyrians come down and attack the northern tribes and take them and just sort of ant pile them. All right, you know what I mean by the ant pile? All right, what do you do? You step on an ant pile and what happens? They go everywhere, right? All right, and what happens? The next day there's just a pile of mud where that ant pile used to be. Okay, that's kind of what Israel turned out to be. The Assyrians, though, this was their strategy. They would take nations, they would take groups of people, and they would send them literally all over the known world. Uh, as far as Persia, uh, everywhere. Just send them out. Why? Because when they're in a collective, what can they do? They can rally together and they can rebel. So you take these people and you dissipate them everywhere. And then they would take other people from different parts and they would move them in here. All right? So some people would be left, some people would take, and then they would start to intermarry and start to interrelate. And then we'd get these people called the Samaritans. All right? 
half-breeds. All right, so the Assyrians move people into Israel, they marry, and then the true Israelites do what to the half-breeds? You're not full-bred. You stay away. See, this is where we get that Samaritan thing going on. <clears throat> so 722, northern tribes destroyed, annihilated. We, we still don't know who they are to this day, where they are to this day, completely annihilated. All right? But the southern tribes, we get about 100 more years out of this. In 605, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he takes all the pretty people. Okay? He, he, he invades Judah, and God lets him just take them. So who do we get? Who do we lose in that first year in 605? We lose the pretty people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. All right? So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't come in and wipe them out, doesn't destroy them anything. He just says, God says, all right, I'm going to give you to these guys. And he takes the pretty people and he sends them over there, trains them up, all this good stuff. He installs the king, puts the king in charge. Uh, the king rebels against him. And in 597, Nebuchadnezzar comes back and takes almost everybody. He says only the poor people were left to manage the fields in 597. All right? Now, about this time, uh, some prophets started to come up and say, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Within a year, God is going to rescue us. Why? Why would they make that? Why would they make that statement? Why would they draw that conclusion? What's the history been for the last 800 years? They rebel, oppress, rescue, peace, right? So they rebelled, they were oppressed, now what's God supposed to do? Rescue. We cried out, God, help us, save us, save us from these horrible people that have come in and stolen our, stolen our pretty people, and now they've taken just about everybody. And they expect what? Any day now. And the prophets were saying, within a year, within two years, it's going to happen. And Jeremiah comes back and goes, guys, we've pushed him too far. The curses of Deuteronomy 28, the curses of Joshua's farewell address when he says, if you turn away, you will be oppressed until you disappear from this land. Those are coming true. This is over. God's not going to rescue us. <laughs> what do you think it was like? What, what's the feel of the Israeli people in the 597 when so many of them had been taken captive over to Babylon? When, when they're sitting back and they're just waiting for God to show up and waiting for the judge to show up to rescue and, and to make everything better. And he doesn't come. What's the feel? Do they have any hope? Can you imagine pushing your, 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 your God away so much that God says, I'm done. I've been patient. I've been long-suffering. I've been compassionate over and over and over for 800 years. And Manasseh, with his sacrifice, that tipped the scale. And I'm done. I'm done rescuing you. I'm done coming to your, to your defense. I'm done coming in and fixing all this for you. You're on your own. What's the feel? How does that feel? Jeffrey, can you imagine your parents just going, get out, you're done. Don't even come back. Heidi, just go away, Katrina. Imagine the day when they just finally kick you out and say, I've had enough of you and your behavior. All right? Don't come back. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Landon, you're, you can't wait for that day. All right? I'm out of here. Freedom. All right? No, but imagine the day when God said, no, I'm done fixing this for you. And you're sitting in Babylon, 600 miles away, 600 miles of desert between you and your homeland. And God says, I'm not coming back. Sit there. Go to Jeremiah 29. I want you to see this. Now you can read Jeremiah. This part of Jeremiah is really interesting because we have these prophets. God says, hey, put on this yoke around your neck. And go before the king and tell him this is what's happening. This is what's taking place. Um, 
because the prophets, these prophets have been in there and they've been saying, you know what, God's going to be back any time now. And Jeremiah's going, no, he's not. He told me he's not coming back. You're lying to the people. You're giving them this false hope. You're, you're telling them that it's not going to happen. And God says, Jeremiah, I want you to write a letter to the people who've been taken over to Babylon. It's, it's right after 597, all right? To write a letter to them. And this is the text of the letter. And I want you to read this letter and hear this letter, maybe the full text of the letter for the first time. Um, I'm going to jump right into the letter because I've given you sort of the history on it. Verse 4. This is what the Lord of hosts, that means the Lord of the army, the commander-in-chief of the army, the Lord that will mess you up if you mess with him. All right? This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. To all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it has prosperity, you will prosper. What is God telling these people, these exiles who've been taken out of their homeland, out of Jerusalem, and moved 600 miles over here? What's he telling them? Get comfy. Build houses. Do you build a house when you think you're going to be there temporarily? I mean, what else? Do you plant a garden when you think God's coming back for you anytime now? Do you take wives, have sons? Do you start a family? I mean, a, a lot of you have, have moved around a lot. You're kind of transient. You're kind of, woo, are we going to stay here for a while? Are we going to be here for a while? What's, what's the future hold here? We just don't know. Do you start putting down roots when you're not sure? Or when you think God's coming, going to rescue you any day now? God's saying, get comfy. I'm not coming back. I'm not going to save you. I'm not going to send a judge. You just need to get comfy. And that's why I said, Jeremiah 29, 11, we think this is an amazing verse, right? But what, what are the people... What's the reaction of the people as they are hearing this message? Are they thinking, woohoo, somebody get me a t-shirt. I want to write that on it. Verse 8. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the declaration of the Lord. Don't listen to those people telling you I'm coming back in two years, in one year, in next week, whatever. They are lying. I'm not coming back. 29.10, there we go. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Now, how many people reading that thinking 70 years, hmm, he's going to come back for us in 70 years. That'll be awesome when he comes back in 70 years. No. What are you thinking? I'm going to be dead. My kids will probably be dead. Not a long lifetime, lifespan, right, at this time? So they're thinking, I'm going to die here. I'm never going back. Daniel, I'm going to die here. Daniel would have read this letter. What, what feeling do you get in this moment? Is there a lot of hope? Yay, 70 years. If I told you right now, in 70 years, everything's going to be okay. What am I logically, rhetorically saying? For 70 years, it's going to be what? Build your house. Take your wives. You're never going to see home again. That's why I say Jeremiah 29, 11. We take this and we grab it out of context and we go, woo, yay. They didn't. For 70 years, I will attend to you and confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. That word can be translated the thoughts I have for you. It can also be translated as the design I have for you. If, you, if you've ever read, anybody ever tried to read through the Bible? And you get into Exodus when they start talking about the design of the tabernacle. 
and you're like, oh, that's it, I'm out. Some of you make it through there and you make it into Leviticus and you're like, okay, can we kill one more animal here? All right? But that idea of designing the tabernacle, this is the exact same word. I know the design I have for you. I know the plans that I have for you. See, I destroyed the northern tribes. I'm not destroying you. I have a plan for you. Look at this. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare. In, in the Greek, it says, it's the word irene, which is the word peace. For peace and not for disaster or for harm. It's our Greek word kakos. All right? That just sounds bad, right? There's kalos, which is beauty, and there's kakos, which is harm. It says, I, I know the plans that I have for you. All right? And don't, don't you feel the, the parental love in this moment? I know the plans I have for you. I'm not going to harm you. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm, I have plans for peace for you. Now, that's going to be 70 years from now, so you better get over it. But it's going to be this amazing plan, plans for your welfare, not for your disaster, to give you a future and a what? Hope. Now, how do you live? How do you live if you're reading this letter? How, how do you look at this and go, he's going to give, he knows the plans, he's giving us a future and a hope, but it's going to be 70 years. So what do you do with your kids? What do you do with their kids? You teach them. There's a hope. There's hope. God has a plan. God has a plan for humanity, and he's giving us a future and a hope. That's why I said I wanted to break down this verse for you to make it really where you're going, oh, that's not nice. That's not nice of God at all. But then to come back and say, look how beautiful this is. Because God knows the design he has. God knows the story. He knows the story he's writing. And this story is a romance novel. And then God says, I love you so much. I'm going to give you a future and a hope. An unrevealed, beautiful reality of this life to come. If you come over here to 31, 31, 31, it says this. It says, look, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. A covenant they broke even though I had married them. Verse 33, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of the grace of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. Who needs to hear that message today? Do you think the people living in Babylon who have thought God has sent us here because of our sin and we're never going home, do you think they need to hear that? Do you think they need the hope that God is saying, I know the design, I know the plan I have for you. It's to give you a future and a hope and I'm going to forgive your sin. And then Jesus is born. And Jesus is born 500 years later, almost 600 years later, Christ is born. And what does he do? He ministers, he teaches, he heals, and then he dies. Why? To forgive us our sins so that God will remember our sins no more. The hope has come true. 120 people gather in the, in the upper room about seven weeks after Christ has been raised. And they are believers and they're going, this is the hope. This is the new covenant. This is our hope. This was the design God had all this time. This was the future he's giving us to forgive us our sins and to remember them no more. And they're sitting there and they're praying. All of a sudden, God goes, hey, why don't you guys take the Holy Spirit? Let's see what happens. And all of a sudden, the, the wind comes in, the flames of fire go over, and then the, the disciples go out and they start speaking in tongues to all the people gathered in Jerusalem for this festival of weeks. And people from all over the known world hear the mighty acts of God through the words of these apostles and they respond, and 3,000 more turn to Christ that day. The disciples, they start to teach in the, in the temple. They start to meet in houses, gather together all the time, sharing meals and doing all this beautiful stuff. And within weeks, 5,000 more have come to realize this 
is the future and the hope of Jeremiah's letter. This is what we have in store. And what happens to the Jewish church in the days right after the resurrection? It just explodes. The Jewish people are turning to Christ and they're understanding this is what God was talking about. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope that our sins will be forgiven and that we will be restored to our God someday through the blood of Christ. But what happens to that hope after a while? You know, they're ready for the resurrection anytime now. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to restore everything and he doesn't come back. <clears throat> and what happens to the hope after a decade or two? What happens to the fervor that they had, those who saw the resurrection, those who felt what it was like to hear the guys at Pentecost speak? What happened to all of that? It started to fade. And what happens to hope when it fades? What happened to you? At one point, you had this beautiful, glorious experience with Christ. And you turned to him knowing that this was your future and your hope. This was the one who took away your sins and made everything right. And you started going to church. And a decade later, you're still walking into that building. But what happened to your hope? Is that still what drives you into the building? Or has it been replaced by social programs, kids, friendships? All these peripheral things that are good, they're not bad. They're just peripheral because what happened to the hope? Because when ha what happens when that hope fades? It turns into religion. Not the good kind of religion that makes you tremble before God, but the religion that makes you walk into a building and read a book and never be stirred, ever, ever stirred. So this guy, this guy pulls out pen and paper and he writes a letter to the Hebrew church that's lost its hope, lost sight of its hope, lost sight of this fervor of this hope. And he writes this letter. And we have this, you have a copy of this letter. You have a copy of a letter of one of the early apostles, disciples, who writes to this church, this church of, of Jewish believers, and says, don't lose hope. Restore your hope. Renew your hope. He says, we have this hope that's an anchor to our soul. It's firmly embedded behind the curtain. It's firmly embedded in the presence of God. You have this hope. Don't lose it. Fight for it. Get your neighbor. Don't let him walk away. Don't lose the hope that you have. Don't turn this into religion and don't turn away from this hope that was given to us, spoken to us by Jeremiah 600 years before it happened. Don't lose that hope. Don't let it fade. That's the letter to the Hebrews. This beautiful letter of a man who had this amazing hope in Christ, writing to his brothers, his Jewish brothers, and saying, restore the hope, renew the hope. Don't lose the hope. Fight for the hope. Here, let me tell you about some guys that fought for it themselves. This amazing... Hebrews 11, story after story. They fought for it. They had a hope. Don't lose your hope. Don't lose your hope. That's what Hebrews is. And that's what we're going to be studying this fall. Let's pray.